Hi, Gong Si Fachai. I'm Sarah. I'm one of the volunteers here on the worship and production team. Today, I'm going to be bringing you the third installment on our series on Jonah. Now, I'm sure you can agree, Jonah was quite busy in chapter one, tiring himself out, trying to run away from God and God's plan. By contrast, in chapter two, let's just say Jonah had quite a bit of time to think about his actions hanging out in the stomach of a whale. When we left Jonah last week at the end of chapter two, he'd just been vomited back onto land. Ugh, can you imagine the smell? He probably wanted to run back and jump into the sea, whale or no whale, to wash that off. But what we'll see in chapter three is a story of God's redemption, a God who gives a second chance, even when we've let him down. We see a man restored, walking in obedience and the impact that it has on those around them. In Jonah 3, we're reminded of how loved and precious we are to God and how life-giving his mercy and forgiveness is to us all. Let's read Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Well, this has taken an interesting turn, hasn't it? After his rather dramatic act of initial disobedience, we find Jonah has ended up at that place where God always wanted him to be. I wonder today if you might be able to relate to the position Jonah's found himself in, Perhaps just like him, you find yourself at a place of being ready to answer God's second call. God is a God of second chances and third for that matter. In Jonah, we read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Here we see the graciousness and the patience of God who not only restores his prophet back from the place of death, the place of rock bottom and hopelessness, to a place of security on dry land, but he also recommissions him with the original plan for his life. It's like God just looks past the whole episode of Jonah running away and just brings him back to the place where they left off, when Jonah was last walking in faith, just like a relationship with a dear old friend. 
You know, I'd go so far to say that God is even more than a God of second chances. In my journey, in my relationship with God, he's given me chance upon chance. I haven't always got it right. I feel like sometimes I've fallen short and I've not done the things that I know God has wanted me to do, who has asked me to do. And it's often led me to a place of feeling far from him. I wonder today if you might have felt like that. Perhaps today you're feeling hopeless, isolated, distant from God. Perhaps you've had feelings of guilt or shame from being disobedient to God's commission for your life. Perhaps like Jonah, you ran away in fear or misunderstanding. Today, I want to remind you that God loves you and that he's a God of mercy and forgiveness. Now, this isn't to justify our times of failure, unbelief, but the reality is we aren't perfect and we don't always get it right or do the right thing. And that just makes me so much more thankful that our God knows what we are made of, of of our mistakes that we make. And yet in spite of this, he maintains his faithfulness, even in the face of our weakness and at times shaky commitment. And you know, Jonah isn't the only person who sees God's patience extended to them. Throughout the Bible, we see how God proved himself to be a God of second chances. Take Abraham, for example, when he tried to take matters into his own hands after God had promised him a son, he probably thought he'd really messed it all up. And look at David, he was always messing up and asking for forgiveness. As I was reading Jonah, I wondered what might be some of the reasons for him disobeying God. Perhaps he felt inadequate, unqualified. Jonah can be known as the escapist who God brought back to save Nineveh. God still used all these people who made mistakes to fulfill his plan. Perhaps you're questioning whether you've let God down. Be assured his patience and forgiveness is also available to you. Through his son, Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate advocate. And by his example, we can find ourselves back on the path walking in faith. When Jonah is in his right place, the place where God has called him to be, we see him recommissioned. And in this recommissioning, I think we can learn a great lesson. You see, God doesn't really reveal much of the details of his plan. In fact, he doesn't say much at all other than go and proclaim my message. Now, if you know me, I've told you, I've said this before, I love details and I really am a planner. I recently started working for Alpha and one of my key responsibilities is to meticulously plan how and when we will translate and contextualize the new Alpha Youth film series into 55 languages. And I love it. But imagine you've been through all that Jonah has been through. Wouldn't it be great if God could just flesh out the plan a bit more? Add in a couple of key milestones, perhaps some timeframes. I can see it now. The conversation could have gone like this. Jonah, this is going to be amazing. Don't worry. I've mapped out each and every step of the future. You'll just go there, march through the city for this amount of hours, saying that I'm going to destroy it all in 40 days. And by this date, the Ninevites will actually repent. And from the king down to the lowest servant, it's going to be awesome but he doesn't. Even though God knows how things will turn out, he doesn't tell Jonah. And why? 
Why does God choose to say so little in this moment? Why does he give him the bare minimum? A few weeks ago, I was hanging out with my teenage daughter at a coffee shop and we started talking about surprises. I love to give them. She hates to receive them. She reminded me of a time when my children were much younger and I just told them, that's it, get ready. We're going out. We're going somewhere fun. Now, if you've ever been in contact with any tiny humans, you will know that that was not enough information. On and on, they kept asking me questions, kept trying to figure out the destination. They were looking for clues, for markers on the way. They were tireless in their pursuit to figure out the plan. But as I chatted with my daughter, I asked, why do you think I like to give surprises and hold back some of the information? And she said simply, it's because you love us. And you know what? She's spot on. As a parent, nothing brings me greater joy than to see the look on my children's faces, the look of happiness, gratefulness, and sometimes awe. If you don't have a child, you might have done something for a friend or for a family member, and I'm sure you can relate to that feeling. The way you feel to see the look of joy on their faces when the full plan is eventually revealed. And you know what? I also want them to trust me completely, to know that I've got their backs and that I only want to give them the best. And I think in some ways that is why God withholds the details from Jonah. It's because he wants him to walk by faith one day and a step at a time, trusting him for each and every new circumstance that comes his way. All God was interested in at this point in time is the obedience of his servant Jonah to do that which he had asked him. The rest will take care of itself and God deals with us in the same way. There's no guarantee that if God asks you to do something, he's going to fill you in on every minute detail. He might just say, make that call, stop that habit, ask that person, wait, go, because he wants your complete trust and obedience. He wants you to see, he wants to see your complete joy when the plan is finally revealed. When my husband and I took the step to move to Malaysia, let's just say I had no idea this is where I would be or that this would be part of my story. And when I listened to that call that told me that the skills I developed in my banking career could be put to a much better use for him, now looking back, I see God's fingerprints and faithfulness in every season and every decision that has led me to this point. It didn't make sense then, but now I can see God's guidance. God just wants to hear our yes and see us go. Today, what is God calling you to take that first step into? How does he want you to show you are walking in faith? What is God giving you a second chance to do? Whenever there's a call, there's always an opportunity to answer. And what I really liked in this chapter is that we see two types of responses to God's call. Let's start with Jonah's. And that was to rise and obey. It says Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This time, there's no argument from Jonah to the command of God. There's no wasting time, no thinking it through. There's no weighing up the options. There's just the simple obedience and action. He just goes. But why? Why the change in Jonah's response? I think there's no doubt 
that Jonah would have been grateful for, the God, for God's mercy that had been shown to him. But I also think he would have been amazed at God's power. The Bible says your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Jonah had pretty strong evidence to prove that if God can save him after being in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, then God could surely save him from an angry Assyrian reception. Jonah believed that God could do something outstanding in Nineveh, and he made the decision to obey God in the full assurance and recognition of who God is and all he is capable of doing. Jonah began a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We see Jonah's not just going, but he's also delivering a pretty short and, sh short and sharp message to Nineveh. He went to a hostile place and faithfully delivered a pretty grim message. The Ninevites were known for their plotting against God, idolatry, murder, lying, taking things by force, enslaving nations and great cruelty. And I'll give it to Jonah, there's certainly simplicity in his message. No one in Nineveh could say that they didn't fully understand what Jonah meant. What do you think would happen if someone started doing that today? Can you imagine 40 days and New York will be destroyed? You'd probably get locked up. And that's because the message of any type of judgment is one that people don't want to be given, even if like the Ninevites, they were deserving of it. We often hear today that God is a God of love. He won't judge us, he loves us. And it is true that in this age of grace, God isn't destroying cities in his wrath. But it's important to remember, he does give people over to their ways and sin. Romans chapter one tells us about the wrath of abandonment and that he has set aside a day when he will directly judge and overthrow the cities of this world. But thankfully for the Ninevites, they won't be one of them because they didn't think Jonah was some madman from a strange land, but they heeded his warning. And in verse six, it tells us they believed God. So let's look at the response of the Ninevites. This story of the Ninevites is one of the greatest examples in the Bible of the power of repentance. We see the entire Assyrian nation who were known for their absolutely wicked acts turn to God through the preaching of one man. Repentance, it says, was found in the king right down to the least of the nation. The king himself took off his royal robes and replaced them with sackcloth, which can be traced back to Genesis 13 as a garment that was worn to give a sign of great repentance, great sorrow and mourning. He repented and he led his country in doing the same. Like his people, the king hears this prophecy of an unknown God given by an unknown prophet, but believes it and responds immediately and dramatically. The whole city moves to mourning, turning from their violent ways and throwing themselves on the possibility that this God may just extend mercy to them. A friend recently shared with me the story of Canon White. He is an Anglican priest and he's an internationally known, renowned global peacemaker. From 1998 to 2014, he served as the Anglican vicar of St. George's in Baghdad in Iraq. And when he landed there in 1998, 
he found out that there were 200,000 believers in Baghdad that could trace back their ancestral roots to Nineveh. They were known as the Ninevite believers. The ruins of Nineveh can be found today in the city of Mosul in Iraq. And I share this information to share with you the impact that repentance can have on future generations. All those years later, the residual power of the Repentance that was carried out by the Ninevites can still be seen. The definition of repentance is a heartfelt conviction. It's a deep regret over an offence to God, a turning away from a sinful way of life and turning towards a God-honouring way of life. Simply put, true repentance starts with hearing the word of God and ends in turning to God and away from the wrong things previously done. Repentance in itself should be viewed as a gift, a kind of miracle, the act of acknowledgments of saying sorry and turning away from that thing gives life. In Mark Knight's sermon last year in the Thanks, Sorry, Please sermon series, he talked about the power of being sorry and how it can heal and change situations and relationships. One of the things that he said that really stood out to me was how being sorry is a pointer towards the reality of God and his ways in our lives. He is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of reconciliation. And he's a God of changed minds, hearts and lives. And that how when we are sorry, we reflect a little bit of God back into the world. In Acts eleven eighteen, it says, when they heard this, they quiet down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. But the reality is sometimes it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes we hear the word of God and we're convicted and just like the Ninevites, we swiftly make that 180. But there are times where we hear and we're convicted And it might take the form of a three-point turn. And if we're being really honest, sometimes we hear the word of God. We are convicted, but the pace in which we're able to turn away from those things goes more of that than an oil tanker. Little by little, sometimes progress is so small, we wonder if we have made any movement at all. Imagine this light represents the grace and forgiveness of God. As imperfect people, I'm an imperfect person, we can often be struggling in living a completely God-honouring life. These struggles create a barrier between us and and God, slowing down our spiritual growth. But this barrier isn't created by God. It's put there by us. And even though we have put this barrier up, it doesn't stop the power of God's grace and forgiveness. God's grace and forgiveness continues to shine as brightly as it's always done. Its intensity isn't diminished. Its power isn't minimized. It remains constant and true. Our relationship with God is a lifelong journey, one in which we grow and progress. It's a lifelong process, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Sometimes we sin because of ignorance. We just didn't know. Sometimes it's born of our weakness. And other times it can just be pure disobedience. But the good news is that there's a way to bring down this barrier and to live in the full light of God's grace and forgiveness, free from shame and guilt. And that is through Jesus. Ultimately, for us, repenting has been made possible through the atonement of Christ. Jesus bore our sins and the cross symbolises his death for our redemption. One of the things I love most about this story is the way in which we get a glimpse into the character of God. This leads to the final point on how we see God's mercy in action in this passage. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The Ninevites had hope. They repented genuinely. They fasted. They covered themselves in sackcloth. They called on God in prayer. They turned from their evil ways. They sought genuine restoration. And God saw that and changed his mind. He says, can I not do with you as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. God doesn't delight in the judgment or death of the wicked. He always relents if the people will repent. He wants none of us to perish. If any will turn, he will turn and be merciful. He is always calling out to us. He is always drawing us back to him. He is willing and able to turn from that which he has announced if the actions of people warrant it. You see, God is always waiting to respond with grace and mercy. He is waiting to receive us in the fullness of his forgiveness. Maybe today God is waiting to give you a second chance, just like he did for Jonah, calling you to rise and obey. Or perhaps like Nineveh, God is calling you to fully turn to him. Whatever the call is, how will you respond? Let's pray as David did in Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. <laughs>